and Pogba leaves for McTominay! Magnificent! It's Moraes, he's done it again! He has fizzed that into the bottom corner. Vardy for Chowdhury. And set for Madison! Alisson saw Salah running from his own half, so onside here, Mo Salah. Salah to settle it! In front of the clock! There's no feeling like that feeling! And now you've got to believe them. You have got to believe them. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 14 of the FreePL podcast. Um, what a weekend we've just had. Plenty of action in the Premier League, surprise results, plenty of talking points. Let's start with Peter, with his West Ham side, picking up the win against Leeds on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely buzzing after this result. I think it was one of our, our best overall performances. Came through what could have been a really, really tough game. Went 1-0 down after five minutes and, and came back and, and got the victory. And really sort of impressed with how Moyes had clearly identified where we were going to be strong against their weaknesses and had had worked out that set pieces were going to be the thing worked on that got two goals from set pieces and, and got the result it was exactly what we needed to do very clinical performance I thought and arguably we could have actually ended up with a, a more emphatic victory if we'd finished some of the chances we had from open play as well yeah for me this was probably Leeds's worst performance of the season as well despite taking the lead early on I thought they weren't anywhere near their best. And when we went there in the championship, we saw them every week just turning teams over with the way they play. But the last couple of weeks, maybe even three weeks, I feel like teams are starting to not just find leads out, but like almost dissect them and, and put together game plans which negate their style of play. And I thought West Ham did a really good job of that. So credit to David Moyes and credit to the system change as well, because he got so comfortable playing five at the back the last couple of weeks. And then you switch it up in this game, play four at the back and, you know, exploit the weaknesses that Leeds obviously have shown in the weeks before so yeah all in all I was pretty impressed by West Ham actually and that's a rarity and I was particularly impressed with Ben Rama as well I thought he had a really good full debut his first start for the club and yeah he keeps playing like that I think it won't be too long before he becomes indispensable for West Ham because he saw his ability on the ball you know his touch and his supply into the box I think he's going to be such an asset going forwards. Yeah it was interesting to see how Leeds had really dropped their intensity in this game I felt like they weren't pressing quite as hard as they've done throughout the season so far. And I wonder if that's the overall intensity of the Premier League is starting to catch up with their players. At times, it's looking, like Matt mentioned, the last couple of games, people are starting to catch them out. And I, I wonder if that is Bielsa's methods are starting to show their weakness about how if you don't have a deep enough squad, you're asking a hell of a lot out of those players. Yeah, you look at the bench that Leeds had in this game as well, and it just lacked any kind of impact coming off the bench. You know, there's no one to change the game that came onto the pitch. And I think that must be the worry for Leeds going forward this season is that they don't have players to impact the game when they are losing. And I thought West Ham were dominant almost throughout. And yeah, Peter, you must be pretty happy with West Ham's best start since 2015. Yeah, it's been brilliant. It really has taken me back to that season where we were flying high early on in the season. Same for your team, Southampton will fly on high as well and we'll, we'll come on to Southampton later. But yeah, absolutely loving life at the moment. And just on what Angus said about the Leeds intensity, I completely agree. I mean, I sent you both a message after about the first 10 minutes, I think, saying after Leeds had scored, I was really worried that this could become an embarrassing scoreline because first 10 minutes, Leeds were pressing, they were flying all over the pitch. Every time the ball was loose, there was three men going for it. And I thought there's... You know, from watching West Ham consistently, I know that we don't have that kind of same intensity to our game. So if Leeds had kept that up for the 90 minutes, we would have been in big trouble. But 
they just couldn't do it. You could tell they were tiring and they just couldn't actually manage to, to keep that intensity going. So, you know, one, once they lost that intensity, we were able to settle into the game and, and take over. And I feel like that's what Moyes has brought to the team is that kind of ability to ride some bad bad form early on in the game and then come back and actually pick up the way we want to play and, and make it our game rather than playing to the other team's strengths. Your side's really starting to remind me of the Moisey Everton back in the day where they were always a very solid side, but then with the ability to break teams down and get the goals. And it's it's actually amazing how much he's starting to turn you around. And I think when your fans fully do get back in the stadium, I can imagine they are now going to really back him and back the side because as a team, they're really starting to show a fighting spirit. Like, I don't look at your side anymore and see players where I think, oh, they don't really want to be there. They're just kind of there for the massive wages. You've seemed to have moved on a lot of that type of players. And I think that's definitely starting to show. Yeah, it won't be long before David Moyes is touted for the Manchester United job and then the whole cycle starts to reset. OK, next up we had a Midlands derby, Wolves-Villa. Yeah, it wasn't the best game, to be honest. It was a very narrow win and a very last-minute win for Aston Villa. I think on the balance of things, I think Aston Villa just about deserved the win. They um, out-battled Wolves, in my opinion, and there are so many cards in this game. I think the discipline was a big issue for both teams. But yeah, they just about edged it, last-minute penalty, and that must be a pretty sweet one for Aston Villa. It was another kind of typical performance by Wolves this season. They're really struggling to break teams down at times. And unless they're coming on to them so they can counter-attack and get their really pacey attackers going forward, they're just not looking like the Wolves, which we've come to really know the last few seasons. It's a bit of a shame. Obviously, considerably better performance midweek against Chelsea, where, especially in the second half, they really came at them. But I think that's another sign of the type of teams they're going to excel against. And the type of teams are really going to struggle against. Not the best game we saw this weekend at all, was it? Um, the, the, in some ways, the highlight for me was after the goal was scored, when El Ghazi didn't really celebrate that much, and Grealish was very much like, "No, come on, we've got to go and celebrate by the corner flag. Waste as much time as possible before the end of the match. Run that clock down." But as much as I criticise Grealish for some of his antics during the game, you can't really blame him too much for that. He, he did the right thing in that moment. But yeah, I think it says a lot about the game as a whole. It, my my favourite moment about it was the goal celebration. Yeah, it was quite a forgettable game, really. And unfortunately for Wolves, it was another case of not being able to break teams down, like Angus said. And yeah, I'd be interested to get your guys' opinion on Silva and whether you thought he was an able replacement for him. And as he had to lead the line for the first time in this game, and he was unlucky he hit the post in the match, but couldn't get off the mark for Wolves. And it was, yeah, not the best display from him, really. It's never going to be an easy transition for him. He's, he's a really young player coming into the most competitive league in the world. I think it's what you'd expect, his performance. Um He showed flashes that he could be a really good player. And yet again, in the Chelsea game, he showed flashes of the ability is potentially there. But it's going to be a long season. He's he's going to need to get a goal relatively early on, I think, to get himself flowing. If not, it could really become an upward battle for him. Yeah, and he's got huge boots to fill in terms of replacing Jimenez, really, hasn't he? In terms of being their main goal scorer. Jimenez has been their, their star striker, their goal scorer for seasons on, on end now. So... It's going to be really tricky for him to come in and actually prove himself to the Wolves fans. The fans will obviously want him to hit the ground running and play well. But so far, has he shown enough to make me think he's got the ability to lead the line for a Premier League club? No. Does that mean I think he's a not a good enough player? Also no, because he is still very young and he's still got a, a long career ahead of him. And how many times have we seen players not hit the ground running in their first season in the Premier League and then go on to become stars? So it doesn't mean that I don't think he's going to be up there with the best, but he's He's not done anywhere near enough to prove that he is at the top level at the moment for me. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, actually. And um, one last thing to note on this game was Martinez's performance in goal. I thought he had an absolutely mammoth game. I think he made seven saves in the game and just looked unbeatable. And 
for Aston Villa, a team that are used to struggling at the bottom of the league, I think having a good keeper was going to win you so many points over the course of the season. And that's exactly how it's turning out. So fair play to Aston Villa for doing that business. And yeah, he looks like a bit of a mountaining goal. Next up is the returning Newcastle. Their squad took a bit of a battering from coronavirus for all what we've heard from Steve Bruce. But they battled in this game really well and got the, got the win. 2-1 to Newcastle and a much needed result for them to keep their momentum going this season. West Brom on the other hand still struggling and really struggling down at the bottom of the league and they have a lot of work to do if they're going to stay up in the Premier League. Yeah it was a really slow start from West Brom in this game I think they conceded after 19 seconds and when you concede that early against any team it's always going to be an uphill battle and that's exactly what it turned out to be for West Brom. They had to fight their way back into the game and they did find their equaliser just after half time but their former striker, Dwight Gale, comes off the bench with about 20 minutes left and he caused them all sorts of problems. And the goal he did score, I thought, was one of the better headers I've seen this season. He absolutely powered it into the top corner. And I think Newcastle just about deserved this result. Yes, they had a week off. And if anything, that might have worked to their advantage to come in a bit fresher. But yeah, for West Brom, it was disappointing again. And, you know, they just weren't able to build on that momentum after their equaliser and let Newcastle come back into the game, which ultimately cost them it. I was really disappointed by West Brom in this game. You might remember I predicted last week that I thought West Brom were going to win this 2-1. thought they had a perfect opportunity to use the to their advantage the fact that Newcastle had had a week off and not been training and didn't have the match fitness. And I, I genuinely think they, in the course of the match, they had the opportunities to win this. Newcastle, yes, they scored after 19 seconds, but they didn't look like they were going to absolutely dominate West Brom in this. And obviously West Brom got the equaliser and I, I backed them from that moment to go on and get the winner. And I was just really, really disappointed with their attitude to the game after that. I think they didn't take advantage of it. They didn't push on for a winner. Their efforts to, to push up the pitch were really poor, seemed really lethargic and slow. And, you know, I wonder what the mentality of that team is at the moment. Were they settling for a 1-1 draw away at St. James's Park? against a Newcastle team that were lacking match fitness? Because if they were, that's not going to get them many points for the rest of the season. If that's their attitude to these games, they really should have been going for the win. And I think they could have got the win. But fair play to Newcastle, who, to be honest, they, they probably did deserve it over the course of the match. And a really, really good goal finished off by Gale to win the match. Yeah, I think when you bring on Charlie Austin with 30 minutes left, you're probably not going for the win in this game. And if anything, for West Brom, that was where the struggles came. The two strikers weren't doing it from the start of the match, so they had to make a change. And, you know, if Charlie Austin's coming off the bench for you, I don't think he's going to be the one to save your game. And it turned out that way. Yes, they scored with him on the pitch, but it just shows the difference between the quality. Even though Dwight Gale necessarily isn't a starting player for any Premier League club, I thought the way he came off the bench and impacted Newcastle's performance as well as he did just shows the difference in class between someone who knows the Premier League and is used to scoring in the Premier League, then, you know, Charlie Austin, no offence to him, but he's never been a Premier League striker. So, yeah, fair play to Newcastle. And they, you know, just about got the win in this one. Right, so our next game of the weekend was one that, on paper, looked like it was going to be an excellent game and, and turned out to be pretty dull, to put it lightly. Uh, Man United, Man City, Manchester derby, historically has been a very exciting fixture, but this time round... It just felt like neither team really wanted it. I think they were both so desperate not to lose it that it just became one of the most stale games I've watched in a long, long time. And we've watched some stale games recently. So to say that, that's saying something. Yeah, it was, it was really poor. I don't know if either of you have got any redeeming elements of the game that you thought were worth talking about on this. Not, not worthwhile talking about in a game. But <laughs> what I would say is I think especially City should be really kind of disappointed in the way they approach the game almost to the point where they kind of should be ashamed of themselves because this is Manchester United for the taking. This is United who are coming off 
a big loss in the Champions League. They must be slightly demoralised. It's a side where it's one of their big rivals. You go at it, punish them. It was, that opportunity was there for them to do so. And it never felt like, whilst I was watching the game, that they really wanted to do it. Overall game was played at one of the lowest and poorest tempers I've seen in out of any Premiership game this season, let alone two of the big clubs. It, it was appalling at times. And I was surprised how little Pep did to try and ch maybe change the personnel, try and bring someone else on to really take that game by the scruff of the neck. Yeah, I think Roy Keane summed it up perfectly after the game in the commentary. He was basically put it down to, you know, there were too many players after full time just hugging it out, you know, almost looked friendly on the pitch. And when have you ever seen two Manchester clubs act that way after a game? Uh, it didn't send the right message, I don't think, to anyone watching the game. And obviously he was pissed off and I would be too, because a game that used to mean so much has kind of turned into something that's a bit of a procession these days. And, you know, when it's nil-nil in a Manchester derby and there aren't any fans there, there's, it's just a non-event. And two yellow cards in the game, no bad tackles, no aggression from either team. It just wasn't memorable. And I don't really think it's acceptable for either of these teams to be OK with that performance. So, yeah, I think it's yeah definitely one of the worst matches of the season so far. OK, next up we had Everton-Chelsea, and Everton managed to pull out a massive win in this one. Chelsea, you know, looked pretty good in the weeks before this, you know, winning games fairly comfortably, but Everton came into this game and probably executed their game plan as well as they could have. It was almost like the Everton we saw the first three, four weeks of the season. You know, every single player had a role, they all executed their roles to perfection, and they made it look pretty comfortable in the end, actually. I didn't think at any point that Chelsea were on their way back into the game. Yes, they hit the post for a Mason Mount free kick, but other than that, they really didn't create that much. And it was credit to Everton and credit to Ancelotti, who's clearly picked up his players after four or five bad results on the bounce. And, you know, they're back playing almost as well as they were from day one. So I think the fans being back in the stadium was a massive help as well in this game. And, yeah, as for Chelsea, especially after the result they've now picked up in the week, it's it's not looking great for them. Yeah, it was a really, really good team set up and, and organisation from Ancelotti against his former club. And he would have been going into this game hoping to get one over on his, his former employees, definitely. And he's he's done it. Really, really impressive performance from Everton. They didn't do anything spectacular, but they did exactly what they needed to do to nullify Chelsea. They scored a goal against Chelsea, which a lot of teams have failed to do so far this season, albeit a penalty. But, you know, they got it. They, they forced the penalty by the way they were playing. And, yeah, they deserve the victory. And for Lampard, it's probably a bit of a reality check after their really, really good form and picking up a load of wins and really good results. And then, now, yeah, as you said, it's two defeats on the bounce when you take into consideration their midweek game. And he's going to be worried that they potentially start to slip and, and end up back sort of mid-table, which was sort of where a lot of us kind of, I think, predicted them to finish this season. Maybe their performances so far have been slightly overperforming where we thought they would be. The next few games will really show whether these results are a blip or whether their early form was the, the unexpected side of things. I think Ancelotti showed a bit of a blueprint in how you could approach playing Chelsea this season. The way Everton set out throughout the game was really good. There's an intensity to how they were defending and attacking, but at the same time, they weren't rushing forwards. They weren't overplaying it, but at the same time, not sitting too deep. It wasn't like Chelsea were dominating possession throughout the whole match, but Everton were allowing them to have possession in parts of the pitch which they can do anything with yet second it came over into more of the dangerous areas suddenly they improved their intensity they were sharp into the tackles they got lucky as well Pickford had a couple of moments where he came rushing out the goal I think Mount tried to lob him and it just sat on the top of the net and there's a couple of other opportunities where if Chelsea were more at it on the day they probably should have got a goal yeah, and if anything, I thought it was the summer signings that let Chelsea down in this game the most. 
Havertz and Werner looked almost non-existent on, on either wing, either side of Giroud. And I don't think either of them enjoy playing in those positions. I think Werner's a much more effective striker through the middle. So I'm not sure why he's playing out left. And then Havertz, again, on the right, didn't really seem comfortable the whole way through the game. And then you talk about Mendy as well, who gave away the penalty. They're probably the first mistake he's made in a Chelsea shirt. But either way, you know, you look at how well we've been praising Chelsea the last couple of weeks and how their signings have bedded in and they're finally starting to take shape. But in this game, I thought all four of them let them down. And yeah, I think it's something that Frank's going to have to work out. Whether the formation's quite right, I don't really think so. So great for Everton. But I think Frank Lampard's definitely been fooling a few people with the form lately. Okay, moving on to one of the more consistent teams in the Premier League, which I really enjoy saying these days. It's Southampton at home to Sheffield United and probably one of the most comfortable wins we'll ever have in the Premier League. I thought from minute one to minute 93, 94, whatever it was, I thought we were superior by far. Yeah, Sheffield United were embarrassingly bad. I don't think there was one positive that they could take out of this game. I thought we just you know, demolish them from, from kickoff. And it was a really nice thing to watch as a Southampton fan. But if you're a Sheffield United fan, I mean, you must be wondering how you can fix this because it was probably one of the worst performances I've ever seen at St Mary's. And, you know, it's great from a Southampton point of view, but I think, you know, this Sheffield United team are, are almost destined to be relegated already. Yeah, I keep thinking at some stage we're going to see Sheffield United pick things up and show us what they were last season. And every game that goes by, the expectation of that gets lower and lower. And I didn't expect it to happen this game. And and I was absolutely right. I think, Matt, you summed it up really well, that the ease of the win for Southampton was just embarrassing from a Sheffield United point of view. Yes, Southampton played very well, but you'd never had to kick it up into that higher gear to win that game. The, the win was there for the taking. You did what you needed to do to get the win. and And that was all you had to do. Sheffield never made it. A difficult game. They never showed any opportunity to get back into the game. They never showed any fight to try and win the game. It's getting worse and worse every week for Sheffield United. And often you see teams right down at the bottom fighting for their lives, fighting to get those points, fighting to start kickstart their season. And I've just not seen that from Sheffield United this season. And for me, that's just unforgivable, really. The, the players and the, the coaching staff have got a lot to answer to the fans for, for the way they've been performing. Warning signs would have been flagged straight away for the Sheffield United players, even before the kickoff had started. When your two big replacements to try and get your team kick-started again are Phil Jagielka and Sharp, two players who are well into the twilight years of their career. Players who shouldn't really be playing in the Premiership anymore. Let's be perfectly honest. They are probably not even top Championship players anymore. They are very much at the end of their careers. Expecting them to come up against one of the highest intensity teams in the Premier League, a team which is full of young players who battle out. It's such a huge ask and they were never going to do it, let's be honest. McBurney seemed to spend the whole of the first half just trying to kick Bednarak. Didn't really want to do anything else of the game. All he wanted to do was attack him. It's just pathetic performance across the whole pitch. It's, there was no one I looked at in their side and went, oh, they might do something here. Yeah, the strange thing is they brought in these players, Jagielka and Billy Sharp, to probably bring some leadership, some experience to this team. But I didn't see that once during this game from either of them. Jagielka probably had one of his worst games ever. The mistake he made for the first goal was, was terrible. And, you know, he scored an own goal at the end of the day as well, pretty much, by deflecting in Armstrong's attempt. And when you're bringing in players of that calibre and expecting the game to change, I think that is pretty desperate times. So for Sheffield United, I'm sorry to say... Chris Wilder's time's up and if you don't replace him soon you're down you may as well contemplate championship football next season because that's the way it's going and that's for Southampton we can dream of Europa League I guess and um, yeah it's very very promising start to the season it was great to see fans back in St Mary's and yeah what a guy Ralph Passanuso is he's really really changed the way that we go into games now and it's great to watch 
Okay, so moving on to our next game, Crystal Palace hosted Tottenham. It was a 1-1 draw. Tottenham took the lead relatively early on and, and Palace got uh, an equaliser in the last 10 minutes of the game. But aside from the scoreline, I think the, the real standout from this game, which is not something that's not been spoken about yet at all by any means in the media, was the performance of Crystal Palace's goalkeeper, who I'm not going to try and pronounce his surname because I always get it wrong, but he had an absolute blinder of a performance in the last 20 minutes of that game. Some of the saves he made and... And to be honest, over the whole 90 minutes, his his overall performance was the reason Palace got that point in that game. And he deserves all the credit for that 100%. An absolute amazing performance from him. He single-handedly, in my opinion, won a point for his team against one of the best teams in the league at the moment. Yeah, I'll help you out of that a little bit, Peter. I think it's Guaita, as I've been told. But a goalkeeper doesn't usually win your games. But in this case, I thought he was impeccable. Yes, he was slightly at fault for the first one that Harry Kane scored. It was wrong-footed by a bit of a deflection and, you know, it made it look more embarrassing than it was. But I thought the saves he made towards the end of the game were probably some of the better saves I've seen this season, especially that one from Eric Dyer's free kick. I thought that was probably the save of the season so far. He had no right to get to it, but he still managed to tip it over the bar. And, you know, when you've just scored a goal and you got back into the game, uh, like Palace did, you don't want to be conceding a goal straight away. And for him to, you know, dive across the goal and palm that one over the bar, I thought was the moment of the match for me. And, you know, I think it was great for Crystal Palace to get a point from this game as well because I don't think they warranted losing. I thought they were much improved over the last couple of weeks and we've seen just how good they can be now when they have Zahar and Eze playing almost in sync. You know, they looked like they were playing off each other really well and made it difficult for Tottenham to play. Not many teams can say they've done that this season. Really kept their momentum going here, Palace. After smashing West Brom the week before, this is a huge result for them to go against Spurs who... Like you both said, have been really informed. They've looked one of the better teams in the league. And then to get such a vital point just keeps that momentum going. They can keep moving up because the table's so tight at the moment. Another win here and there over the Christmas period. And they could be, one, already looking at having cleared relegations and not, no considerations of that whatsoever, which I don't think they're ever going to at the rest of the season. And the other thing is Europa League is on for a lot of clubs this season. as. A lot of the big cl- clubs are dropping points left, right and centre. And someone's going to sneak into that party and get there. And Palace should be aiming for that, I think. They've got enough players in different positions to really hunt down Europe this season. Yeah, there's definitely the potential there. As you said, the, the league is very bunched up in the middle. There's there's very few points separating about just over 10 of the clubs. So almost over, over 50% of the clubs in the league are, are within you know, six or seven points of each other. So whoever takes the initiative and pushes on at this stage has got a real good chance of getting into those Europa League spaces. Just going back on to Tottenham's performance in this game, it's probably slightly controversial to say this because obviously they've, they've played very, very well this season and they're, they're up at the top of the league for a reason. But realistically, if you think about it, the reason they're up there is they've played incredibly well defensively. They've relied heavily on Harry Kane and, and Son to get their goals and, and to create their goals. Is there an argument to be had that if there's a game where they don't play as well defensively and they concede the goals, that that is heaping an awful lot of pressure on Kane and Son to be the ones to make the win happen by scoring the goals? And you know, with all the best talent in the world and the best will in the world, they're not going to be able to pluck a victory out every single game just with those two players. They do need the rest of that supporting cast around them in that forward line, which, let's be honest, is not an untalented forward line that they've got around those players. Without those players contributing, there's a danger that they become too heavily reliant on one or two. And when those don't perform, maybe they can't get the results that they need. One of their biggest worries is Kane consistently each season will pick up an ankle injury or a hamstring injury. And if that comes this season, at the moment, I think I read somewhere earlier, he 
has been involved with 79% of their goals this season. So even a goal or an assist, 79%. Without him, what are they going to do? Because you take away that type of influence in your team, you're going to be really starting to struggle. And I think that could quite well be where their Premier League title push will drop away this season. Yeah, they are very heavily reliant on both Kane and Son. Obviously, they've had 12 goal contributions between them this season. And, you know, it's very difficult to to think what would happen if one of those two were to get injured. But obviously, we've seen in the summer, they brought in Gareth Bale, they brought in a couple of other players who have looked, you know, not at their best, but in the Europa League, I think Vinicius especially has been been scoring the goals. And whilst Son and Kane are fit, I don't think Spurs have too much to worry about. But obviously, one of them does go down. I do think they'll be okay because... You know, if you've got Bale on the bench, he's always in a fine form if he's playing a regular amount of games. At the moment, he's not, so he's not been able to. But I don't think that's a massive worry for Tottenham, in my opinion. Interestingly, out of this game, we saw Lloris make a bit of an error for Palace's equaliser. And after that, Jose Mourinho came out in the press and say that I'm not going to criticise the best goalkeeper in the league. I'm interested what you guys think as to whether you think he is the best goalkeeper in the league. And if not, then who do you think is? So the very quick, simple answer to that is, no, he's not the best goalkeeper in the league. We saw two other goalkeepers this weekend at the least have a better performance than he did just this weekend alone. It's very difficult to choose who's the best because you've got to look at the the ones that keep the most consistent clean sheets over the last few seasons have realistically been David De Gea, Edison and Alisson. But all of those are playing for teams with a very, very solid defence with a you know millions and millions of pounds being played, spent on the defence. So yes, they're keeping the most clean sheets, but that's not just a singular effort from the goalkeeper. That's the defence contributing as well. I have to say right now, at the moment, um, it's hard to look past goalkeepers like uh, Johnston for West Brom, uh, Melier for Leeds, and, and maybe even a couple of others that are playing for the lower clubs that are really... They are keeping their team's hopes alive in the games by making vital saves. Just just playing for a team with a good defence does not make you the best goalkeeper, in my opinion. You possibly mentioned one of the keepers, who I'd say is one of the top keepers in the league earlier, um, Martinez for Villa. He, throughout the season, has looked brilliant at times. I think he's definitely up there. In terms of the big keepers on, in the big teams, Alisson, I would say, is the best. I think he's the one who pulls off the biggest match-winning saves. Apart from that, I, I don't I personally don't think keepers are at the same level as they once were. I don't think I don't think there's any keeper in the league who are at the standard Petr Cech once was. Keepers like Manuel Neuer when he was at his peak. They're, they Obviously, they're a different breed these days. The way they pass the ball, the way they influence the games in different ways. But I think in pure shot-stopping ability, I don't think we're as, keepers are as good as they once were. Right, so talking about goalkeepers and, and Alisson in particular, the next game that we had was Liverpool visiting Craven Cottage. Um, so it ended up being a 1-1 draw with Fulham getting a surprise point in a game that a lot of people would never have predicted them to get anything from. And arguably, they they definitely deserve the point and maybe they deserve something more. From what I saw of the game, I thought they were well worth the three points, really, considering how much they dominated the early stages of the game. I'm interested to see what you guys thought too. Yeah, if it wasn't for some really big saves from Liverpool in that first half, I, I really thought Fulham should have been two or three up in the first half. And Caballero was the one that was guilty of missing these chances. I thought he had two or three ones where he was unlucky, but probably should have scored. And you put those away against Liverpool like Aston Villa did earlier in the season, you know, you're going to win the game. And I think Fulham were quite unlucky not to get more out of this game. I thought they were definitely worth the point and, you know, unlucky not to get the three. And as for Liverpool, I didn't think they were anywhere near their best, despite welcoming back Alisson, Trent, 
probably the strongest defensive lineup they've had in three, four weeks. And, you know, they didn't really look any better, unfortunately. You know, they were pretty much full strength minus one or two players. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a weird performance from Liverpool. I thought they were on the back foot from, from the start and they were pretty lucky to get the penalty and pretty lucky to get the point, in my opinion. I very much agree. I think they were very lucky to come out of this game with a point. I'm starting to wonder if, obviously, each week we're getting a lot of moaning from Klopp. Each week he's talking about, oh, my players are tired. We're struggling with this. We're struggling with that. We're getting injuries. And I wonder if that's starting to affect the mentality of some of his own players. If you're if you're hearing each week coming from your manager about how crap VAR is, how it's always getting your team down, you've got your key players like James Miller saying, oh, I'm falling out of love with the game. That must be starting to affect some of the mentality of the players throughout that team. And I think that came across in the performance we saw in that match. They were really lethargic throughout. They were poor in their passing. There didn't seem to be any intensity in the way they played. And for years and years, we've seen Klopp's teams go out and go for the juggler against sides, being ultra-aggressive. And not just in this match, but throughout this season, I feel like they've really dropped off that intensity. It's always going to be hard to keep up because they've now been at it for like three seasons straight. They're losing that mojo of their game. I've started wondering, I guess, is how much these injuries have taken toll on the players that are cut to come in and play every game. You know, you look at the, some of the players that are, that played in this match and, you know, Matip and Fabinho have played a large majority of the last four or five fixtures. And usually they probably get rotated around this time of the season. But because there's no one to come in to step in and do a similar job, they just haven't been able to. And I think there are a lot of tired legs in this team and credit to Fulham because I think they really exploited it. But these players are going to have to play a large majority of the season now like without any rest because that's just the way the injuries have fallen, unfortunately, for Liverpool. And if they can't deal with it any better than what they did in this game, I think they're really going to struggle. I don't think they'll be as elite as they were last season. I think they'll struggle to probably make top three. But credit to Liverpool because they did stick in the game and they did grind away for the point that they got in the end. But ultimately, I don't think this was good enough from a Liverpool point of view. And yeah, Fulham arguably should have won. I think over the last couple of seasons, some of the key players have been Mane, Salah, Firmino, Robertson and Trent. And none of them in this game really opened up Fulham in any way. And that was a huge shock to me, especially the two wingers. They've been such an attacking force and they're just failing to get into the game in the same way. And the other one is Mane. He's He seems to have lost just a little bit of edge about him this season. His touch is off. He's not getting into the same attacking positions. But on the other hand, I think we have to praise Fulham. This was a brilliant performance by them. And at the start of the season, all of all three of us were slating them, saying they looked really poor. They were going to struggle throughout the season. And they're really starting to turn it around. Like They're adding a lot of grit to the game. Parker's gotten well-structured, and it's definitely making a big difference. Yeah, the warning signs were there for Liverpool in the way that Fulham had played in a couple of their games leading up to this. And I think that there was definitely... It's not like they can say they were not aware that Fulham had it in them to to battle in this game. Um, It just feels like they weren't really prepared for it. And as soon as Fulham got that lead, it was almost like Liverpool didn't really know what to do, which is really bizarre when you look at the success that Liverpool have had over the last couple of seasons. But I do think what, what both of you said has got some truth in it, that Klopp has persistently played realistically the same starting 11 with maybe one or two changes every now and then really you can't do that for more than a couple of seasons without some of your players burning out and and not being able to perform at the same high level again so there's definitely an argument to be had that he's got himself to blame for some of their their sort of drop in form this season yeah totally agreed and uh, another manager who's probably going to come under a lot of flack and has done previously on the podcast in the last couple of weeks has been Mikel Arteta Again, hosting Burnley this weekend, you know, they were just 
awful again and it's it's not even surprising anymore unfortunately it's just one of those things where they find themselves in a rut at the moment and they're unable no matter what they tried to get out of it and credit to Burnley again I guess because they turned up they had a game plan they stayed pretty solid for 60 minutes waited for an Arsenal mistake Xhaka happily grabbed one of their players by the throat to, to give them that mistake and in the end they ended up profiting off a, a Bamiyan goal but not one at the right end for Arsenal one at the wrong end and it's kind of just the way things are going right now for Arsenal a guy who's only scored one goal from open play this season ends up scoring his seconds in the back of his own net. Just on, on Granite Xhaka, I mean, this might be an extreme point of view, I don't know, but I mean, if I was part of the Arsenal like board, their ownership, their management structure, in my opinion, I'd be looking at him and thinking, well, why don't we just terminate your contract at this stage? Because this is not the first time that he's screwed over his teammates in that way. And it's not the first time that he has made some horrific decisions in the way he conducts himself on the pitch. There is no excuse for doing what he did. We, you know, we, we talked about it last week with the West Brom red card, and we talked about it a couple of times this, this season already, that with that kind of incident, with VAR, you are not going to get away with it. You might have got away with it two or three seasons ago, and if you're lucky enough and the referee's not looking, no one sees it, and then maybe you get a retrospective one-match ban or something. But you're going, you, you are getting a red card if you raise your hands to someone's face or someone's neck these days. There is no reason to do it. There's no justification for it. And as a professional player, someone who's captained that team many times in the past, it's unforgivable. And he he should take a lot of the blame for that game. I think he's potentially single-handedly cost Arsenal a chance of getting anything from that game. They've had to change the way they're set up as soon as he gets sent off. And it's just it's given them very little opportunity to go on and, and push for a win. Yeah, the red card definitely had a big influence on this game. But I don't think that is the real reason that Arsenal, yet again, were incredibly disappointing. Shaka was stupid and I I agree. Arsenal need to get him out of the club. I'm amazed that he's still there. You'd have thought last summer would have been the moment to move him on. He'd regained a little bit of form, so he would have become at that point an actual sellable asset. Whereas now, yet again, like you mentioned, Peter, you're talking about him being possibly just terminating his contract. At that point, what other clubs are going to go look at him and go, yeah, let's spend twenty million on for twenty five million. I can't see many Possibly a few teams in Europe might dip in and go like 10, 15 million pounds. The rest of the team, though, are equally to blame. They were shocking across the board. Burnley, on the other hand, Sean Dyche has got them playing solid at the back again. They're still not really breaking teams down and offering much going forward, but there's a good result. That defensive line is back functioning at its best. Bit by bit, they'll start to move away from the relegation zone, which I think is vitally important for them. And I think, I think they'll have enough to stay up this season. Yeah, just going back briefly onto Xhaka, it just is inexcusable, in my opinion. And from an Arsenal point of view, you must wonder why he's still playing these games. You know, they've loaned out Gwendouzi in the summer, another player who was bringing a lot of trouble to the team. But he's had no chances to almost redeem himself, whereas Xhaka must have had about four or five at this point. And he keeps making the team, he keeps starting, keeps getting booked for stupid tackles. And he was inexcusably stupid in this match. And the fact that he probably won't get reprimanded by Arteta, sold like Peter said, have his contract cancelled kind of just shows the state that Arsenal are in right now because they're having to rely on some of these players week after week, even though they know they're not going to get the performances they need out of them. And I can't see them getting out of this problem anytime soon with the, if they don't start changing the personnel, which Arteta seems very reluctant to do. Yeah, just one final point on that. I think it, it, it goes back to, again to what I said last week about that moment when Thomas Partey walked off the pitch and seemingly didn't seem to have any sort of respect for the the fact that his team might lose that game as a result of his actions. 
it, it's similar in that sense. There's a lack of discipline, a lack of not fear of the manager because you never want your your players to be scared of you as a manager, but lack of respect for discipline in that team. You know, I think obviously every every player every now and then is is open to having a hot headed moment, but I wonder if a manager with slightly more discipline and, and control of that dressing room. You know, does Jacker do that? Maybe not. Maybe he thinks a bit more about the consequences before he reacts. And it, it is obviously easy at this kind of stage of the season to look at a, a team that's not performing and place all the blame on the manager and look at everything and go, it's all the manager's fault. But I genuinely think that plays a part in it. If, if he had a bit more control of that team, I don't think those kind of issues are going to be happening for them. All right, moving on, we have the ridiculous to the sublime. Uh, a really poor performance from Xhaka in the midfield, but in, moving on to the Leicester game, uh, James Madison had one of the, the best performances of his career so far on a Leicester shirt, and he was unplayable in this match. Two really well-taken goals, influential throughout, playing passes all over the shop, playing in Vardy. You know, it was, it was one of Leicester's best performances of the season, and just when they needed it the most, I thought. And, you know, when Leicester are on form, like they were on Sunday, I think they're pretty much unplayable. And Brighton really struggled to really get into this game at all and they had a really early chance with Danny Welbeck but after that they were completely overrun and you know if, if we see this Leicester team week in week out they'll definitely be up there at the end of the season but unfortunately up until now they've been pretty inconsistent. Yeah wonderful wonderful performance by Madison I think like you said definitely one of his highlights of his whole career he was brilliant all over the pitch the way he was just turning on the ball and running at Brighton setting passes going and two very well taking goals like you said um can't be praised enough, really. I think we saw everything which is good about Leicester when they're at the best. They need to keep these performances up. As we've seen, they, they can definitely challenge for the Champions League spots. And they have no reason not to, as long as they maintain this type of performance throughout. Because they can go to any team in the league and give them a run for their money. We saw it against Man City early in the season. And we saw it again against Brighton, a team which play a different style of football, yet they can still run them ragged at times. As good as Leicester were in this game, it really highlighted what we were all worried about with this Brighton side and that they can play well in games and not get any points out of them. But in this game, in these games, when they get completely overrun, they don't look like they're capable of playing at a Premier League level against some of these teams. And the fact that they've not picked up points against teams where they played really well isn't great in, in the fact that they now have to play some of the better teams in the league. And like Leicester, they obviously aren't at the level to compete with teams like Leicester and I think it's a worrying time to be a Brighton fan because yes they started the season pretty promisingly but when you pick up results like this away from home and you don't have a really a, any kind of say in the game and you haven't picked up points all season you know it's very easy to get down on yourself and I think Brighton players and fans must be kind of fearing a little bit it, it might go the other way for them. Yeah you're very right there. they're only two points off relegations are they for all the praise which they they've Rightly got at times this season. They've still not managed to get those points on the board. They played pretty football, but will it be enough? Fulham look to me like a team who are going to continue battling and picking up points. West Brom are starting to show a little bit more to the game. Tonight, they've performed really well against Man City. I don't know how it's going to finish, but they've definitely battled throughout this match. So they're definitely not clear of that relegation battle and they could quite easily fall into it. All right, moving forward into some talking points from the weekends, and they were mainly regarding the fans returning to stadiums in the Premier League, which was great to see for everyone, uh, especially great if you're at some of the games. It must be amazing to see your team again in the in the flesh. Some of the teams that profited this weekend, I guess, were Crystal Palace and Everton, both getting good home results against better teams than they'd probably say themselves. And I think the fans had a lot to do with these 
results as well. Especially the Crystal Palace one, I thought they really rallied their team when they went one 0 down. And as for Everton, I thought in sheer volume alone, they were they were the loudest fans that I heard over the weekend. So I think all of this is now starting to compound into one big talking point where, you know, some of the bigger teams in the Premier League aren't having fans at their stadiums. And are they starting to falter against some of the teams, the lower teams now, who have fans uh, back allowed in their stadiums? Yeah, I definitely think the, the the fan advantage, it seems to be starting to take a bit of an effect, but certainly for Crystal Palace and Everton this week. And if that is a case, and if it's going to start having an impact on the positive results, then it's a huge advantage now for it's a huge advantage for Everton, Liverpool, Brighton, and Southampton, who are now the only four teams in the league who are allowed to have fans in their stadiums following London moving into tier three of COVID restrictions. So that that's a massive boost if if that's going to be a, a sort of a deciding factor in some of the games. So those teams will definitely be looking at it thinking, well, we. We, we need to make the most of this. And the fans will be looking at that and going, do you know what? We've got an opportunity to make a difference from our teams here as well. Liverpool obviously are one of the big teams that we're talking about in this this kind of situation. So maybe they'll have a bit of help in terms of stopping themselves from faltering under that pressure. But certainly for, for some of the other teams, the, the big teams like Chelsea, Tottenham, obviously Arsenal still come into that category really. Man United, Man City, they're all having to play an empty stadium still. And then they're having to play their away games, some of them potentially against teams that have got their own fans in the stadium, putting some more pressure on, making the games a bit more difficult. They're, they're potentially going to start to struggle a bit more. Yeah, I think we definitely saw an increase in intensity in the teams which had their home fans there. Everton played better. Palace definitely played better and got big results this week. Will that really make the big teams struggle as the season goes on? It's a challenging one to know because it's always challenging to know how much do we as fans really affect the game. I like to think we do. If there's ever going to be a chance for us to get a clear indication of how much home fans and away fans really affect the match, I think we are going to see that in the following few weeks. Okay, our question this week comes from Adam, and it's a slightly more different question to what we're used to answering, but we'll try and do our best anyway. So the question is, is Mike Dean still a competent referee? It's a tough one to answer because obviously when you're watching football as a football fan, you tend not to focus too much on the referee you're focusing on your team and and their performance so taking into consideration the referee's performance especially when you know the mainly in matches that you're not watching is quite tough but Mike Dean is obviously one of the more notable referees in the Premier League he's been around since 2003 17 years of Premier League officiating and you know it is almost worth contemplating as to whether he's good enough still we saw this weekend especially he handed out 11 yellow cards and two red cards in the Aston Villa versus Wolves game. And I guess performances like this kind of showcase him a little bit. Maybe he wants to be showcased. Maybe he likes being in the limelight. But I think we've seen recently, or especially the last couple of years, we've seen Mike Dean you know, make some weird decisions and act strangely on the pitch. And maybe he's getting a little bit complacent in the role that he is and how high up he is in the refereeing pecking order. Maybe he's starting to take liberties with the job role. I'm not too sure, but... For me, he definitely isn't one of the better referees in the Premier League anymore. And in general, I think the whole refereeing standards have definitely fallen in recent years. Yeah, I have to agree 100%. On the, in terms of refereeing standards at the moment, I think it's one of the lowest I've known in a long time. At times, VAR probably highlights this even more so. So we see where we go back and see the incidents over and over again. And it probably highlights how poorly the referees are doing. But I don't think that's the only reason there was a general poor standard. And I think that comes across even in the VAR decisions at times. I think we see them and we can be confused how they're getting to these situations and how they get into the results they are 
in terms of Mike Dean on his own, he's always been a referee I found relatively frustrating to watch. He seems to quite often take quite a limelight in a match. He he likes to come to the fore. I've seen him. Isn't he the referee Rooney's arguing with before he scores that incredible volley? Um, I think it's like 2007, 2008 volley by Wayne Rooney against Newcastle. I'm pretty sure it's Mike Dean he's arguing with at the time. He's always been a ref, which seems to be one which the players don't get along with that well. He always seems to be arguing with them. To me, strikes me as quite an arrogant referee. No, I wouldn't say he's competent anymore. And I don't know if I've ever really seen him as a massively competent ref, to be perfectly honest, full stop. I think for me, it's it's kind of an issue with refereeing in the Premier League in general, in that Premier League is one of the most watched leagues in the world. And because of that, the FA will obviously choose you know the highest quality of referees for that particular competition in an ideal world you still want those referees to be relatively unknown you know in an ideal world we don't know Mike Dean's name we don't know who he is we don't know anything about him he doesn't need to be a figure that we're going to be talking about because of the nature of his job and the nature of how many millions of people watch him making decisions every week inherently we are going to know his name and we are going to scrutinize his decisions and I think some referees handle that pressure really well I think Mike Dean's one that has always viewed it as a bit of an opportunity to be in the limelight and be a name made for himself. And he he has that kind of cockiness and arrogance about himself in the way he walks, the way he does things, the way he sort of presents himself on the pitch. So no, I I have to agree with Angus to an extent. I, do I actually think he's ever really been up there in terms of like the best, most competent referee? No, I don't. I think he's he's always had that slight flaw to him in that he he won't thank me for saying this if by some chance he hears it, but... I think he thinks a bit too much about himself in these matches when realistically, when you've got the responsibility of officiating at the highest level, the last thing you should be thinking about is yourself. You should be thinking about the decisions you're making and whether you're making the right decisions based on the rules of the game. Yeah, strangely enough, there's actually an iPhone app uh, called UREF. don't know if anyone's heard of it, but basically it gives football fans the opportunity to review referees after the game and how well you thought they did. And I guess it's no coincidence that Mike Dean finds himself as the lowest rated Premier League official on this app with three out of five stars. So I don't think we're biased in terms of thinking he's not the best anymore or never has been, because obviously other people are seeing his performances as referee on the pitch and thinking that he could do better. And I I don't think it's something that anyone can really disagree with. I think he's definitely lower tier Premier League referee. Yeah, interesting question. I hope he helped come to some sort of conclusion with that, Adam. But um, yeah, maybe avoid watching Mike Dean referee football matches in the future. Okay, and that brings us then to another episode of the 3PL podcast. Thanks again to everyone who continues to listen each week. We'll be back again next week to cover the busy Christmas period with a slightly different format. Until then, make sure you are following us on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And also make sure you're subscribed on YouTube to never miss an episode. We'll catch you all again next week.